Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Equine Vet Education Podcast, where the author or authors of interesting papers published in a relatively recent EVE uh, discuss the paper that they published. My name is Jared Williams, and today we are uh, interviewing Dr. Kurt Selberg, a veterinarian and radiologist from Colorado State University, and for the most part, an all-around good guy. Um, hey, Kurt, how are things? Good, good. How about you? We are doing well. Uh, we're working our way through uh, the coronavirus situation so far. We're relatively uh, healthy and haven't had any big problems just yet. It's just navigating how to get through the day in a, in a new way. How about you guys? Absolutely. Same thing. Right now I'm holed up in a basement trying to get some work done while doing a podcast with the world-renowned Dr. Jared Williams. Yes. I think uh, everybody listening to this probably just vomited and disagreed with you. But uh, probably one thing that we should say, it's got nothing to do with EVE, but it's interesting for us. Uh, we both have young children and I don't know about you, but uh, not having daycare is a big issue. What about you? Yeah, productivity is uh, reduced, especially when the children want to help, and they help frequently. <laughs> I don't know about you, but my kids have not stopped eating. Like every three seconds, they go to eat something, and it's driving me bananas. No I'm not sure that I have been to the grocery store as much <laughs> as when yeah. I'm not supposed to. Yeah, and in an effort to keep your kids safe, they're they're eating you into uh, a likely diagnosis of coronavirus. It's it's a possibility for sure. So uh, getting to the point uh, today, I'd like to talk uh, about a case report that you and uh, three of your colleagues, uh, first off, are being Jamie Balducci, a good friend of both of ours and a former intern who's working her way through a radiology residence at Tufts. Uh, that you guys wrote about prim primary ossifying fibromas of the proximal phalanx in a horse. So let's just get started, uh, if you don't mind, and give us a little bit of a history of this pony that you guys saw and you talked about in the paper. Yeah, absolutely. Before I start that, I want to give acknowledgement to the other two authors, Dr. Roy Poole and, and Dr. Peter Redu, who um, the last one supplied the case to me. I reviewed the radiographs, uh, but he was the primary veterinarian on the case. Uh, this was a five-year-old Welsh pony cross that presented with a, a long-term mild lameness and a firm swelling around the left hind limb in the pasture region. Um, at, the, at the time of the examination, the lameness was a two out of five using the AAP scale. And then that lameness worsened with distal limb flexion. At that time, radiographs of the hind limb were, were obtained and uh, we reviewed those radiographs. Yeah, great. And what I'd encourage anybody listening along right now, Kurt's gonna uh, likely talk through some interesting aspects of the radiographs. So anyone who's listening, this would be a great time to pause and pull up this uh, case report. So you have the rads in front of you. So when Dr. Selberg is describing things, uh, you'll be able to have a visual with the audio. So Kurt, if you don't mind, I know this um, case report uh, took place, looks like over the course of many months, ultimately a year and had radiographs a few times. Will you just go into a little bit uh, your radiographic findings uh, when the, the horse was first radiographed? Sure. So whenever I 
start looking at radiographs. A, I want to have a complete set of radiographs to get the most amount of information to make a diagnosis. And when I look at radiographs, I tend to use, I fall back on my Rankin signs, which are size, shape, margination, location, opacity, and number, to try to come up with an appropriate differential diagnosis based off my findings. And in this particular case, there's a multi-cameral areas of lucent, smoothly marginated defects within the subchondral bone extending into the trabecular bone along the distal medial aspect of the proximal phalanx. There's also some smooth bone proliferation along that distal medial aspect of the proximal phalanx. And so when I look at those particular findings, I try to assess whether this is an aggressive lesion and signs of aggression tend to correspond to the length of the zone of transition, so short versus long, the margins, whether they're smooth or irregular, is there multifocal areas of ill-defined lysis or is it well-defined areas of, that are lucent? and any periosteal reaction. And that goes from smooth, which can be a plus or minus sign of aggression, all the way up to a spiculated periosteal reaction. And that tends to be aggressive. And then I look at the soft tissues and how much there is for soft tissue swelling. In this particular case, again, it goes back, there's multifocal areas of smooth bone lysis within the uh, trabecular bone and subchondral bone. The zone of transition is, is fairly short. Uh, there's very minimal periosteal reaction along that medial aspect and the soft tissues are concurrently swollen. And this extends down into the articular area, but the joint of the proximal interphalangeal joint is, is relatively normal, uh, other than the defect extending down into the subchondral bone. Right, and I know you said this and just to reiterate it, uh, when these rads were taken with these findings, um, the horse was a two out of five uh, lame AP scale. Uh, so it looks like at that time you guys said, all right, these are the findings. This is the lameness. Let's send the horse on and just see how it does. And it looks like it came back in five and a half months. So can you just describe a little bit um, that conversation? What were you thinking after these radiographs and the decision um, to ultimately have the horse go away? And when they came back, you know, we'll work our way up to that next visit. Sure. There's, uh, as the radiologist, and, and I was talking with the primary veterinarian, I looked at these and I said, well, these can have a variety of differential diagnosis based on the findings. I said, they're, they're fairly benign looking changes. They don't look like they're aggressive. Uh, there are subchondral cyst-like lesions and degenerative changes that can occur. And you can have concurrent osteonecrosis that extends into the bone. The osteonecrosis typically can be pretty lame. Uh, but there are variabilities in the stage of this. And so there's a variety of options that were given um, for the horse. And, and one of those included trying to treat um, the joint because it did communicate with the joint. And I think there was some, some uh, talk of shockwave therapy, but ultimately the owner elected to have conservative management and see how the horse did over a period of time with um, minimal treatment and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to try to handle any sort of low-grade pain. And it sounds like um, when the horse came back, 
the, the biggest change was a grade of lameness. You now had uh, a pretty consistent uh, three out of five hind limb lameness and rads were repeated at the time. And my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the rads were similar, not terribly unchanged. Is that correct? Correct. They're, they're relatively similar. There are some subtle changes, and some of that can be explained by differences in radiographic acquisition, meaning certain loosened areas might be a little bit more expanded just based on how you essentially cut the x-ray beam through the, the loosened area. But for the most part, they were relatively similar. And uh, just to touch on this is uh, just a question in general for the audience. You know, it looks like you had, you guys got a standard four view with the, the lateral, the DP, and the two obliques, but then you also threw in the non-weight bearing dorsal 45 uh, lateral plantar medial oblique. Tell me a little bit about why you asked for that shot. It's not included in the paper, um, but just a little bit about the decision making on that and when you should do it, et cetera. Yeah, so the, the non-weight bearing image sometimes goes to patient temperament and whether they're, they're able to put their foot down on the block to obtain the radiographs. And the hind limbs, I think, as every veterinarian knows, are one of the more challenging areas to get um, a horse on the block to get low enough. But ultimately, the, the, um, the decision to ob obtain those particular radiographs are to gain more information and different angles of the joint and where there's communication. So when we look at a joint, it's, it's a curved structure and there's multiple areas for which a cyst-like lesion or even a subchondral defect can occur. And you have to be relatively tangential to the defect to see it nicely. And when we do non-weight bearing imaging, and this is, um, the same premise for multiple areas, the fetlock, um, the stifle, that when we do non-weight bearing images, we're trying to be tangential to the joint margin or another bone structure to try to identify the pathologic change um, in, a, in a better characterization of it. Thanks. And I just want to point out too that um, one of the, the, the other criteria for looking at aggression of the bone lesions is, is there big change in a 60 day period? Now, obviously we're a little bit over that, but was there a big change in the, the appearance of the bone lesion? And usually if it doubles in size over 60 days, we tend to think that is an aggressive bone lesion. And that didn't happen here either. So a lot of the signs that we're looking at on these radiographs are um, somewhat benign. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do a bone biopsy um, and I'm sure it was discussed and the decisions to do, to do it or not do it were addressed with the owner. And ultimately I'm sure it was the owner's decision not to do it. Um, any comments on uh, not necessarily this case specifically, but when you see these sorts of lesions, are you quick to make the recommendation to get a bone biopsy or based on that it didn't change and it didn't seem terribly aggressive would you wait to do the bone biopsy? Like, where do you go for the more invasive bit of uh, diagnostics? Whether, I guess I just mentioned a biopsy, but uh, feel free to comment on other advanced imaging as well. Like, when are you making that recommendation when things don't seem to be changing imaging-wise that much, but the lameness does seem to worsen? 
Yeah, there's there's a variety of advanced imaging stuff that we can do and things aren't quite making sense. Is there more bone activity from one point to another? The challenge oftentimes we incur is the monetary value of doing advanced imaging from one time point to another. And I would say that having serial imaging is one of the more important things we can do to see the evolution of a lesion. The radiographs gave us a pretty good idea in terms of what was happening um, anatomically, but physiologically, we didn't have that scenario to, to fall back on, which some of our physiologic imaging we would we would employ or bone scans and MRI to see if there's any sort of extra bone contusions or bone turnover. And I think that that is an important point you make is when do we actually go do that? And oftentimes, again, falls back on how aggressive the owner wants to be, what are the resources available in the area for which the horse is living. And in this case, the, the owner wasn't, wasn't too keen on being aggressive about extra imaging. And now we talk about bone biopsy. One of those, I think it's important to go back and fall back on what the Rankin signs are. And this is relatively benign. And so an ossifying fibroma wasn't necessarily the, the first thing on my differential diagnosis list. I was thinking more trauma and, and a younger horse, something that potentially is developmental and then through um, the degenerative process can expand out uh, with a, kind of the hydrostatic theory where joint fluid is pressed into a cyst-like lesion and continues on and then we can have some areas of osteonecrosis. And so this is always, there's always a learning opportunity for everybody in every case. And this is one of those ones where something's not quite making sense for us as we started to discuss the case a little bit more. And the owner um, was financially constrained and the horse was not improving. And so we made the next, um, the next step in terms of a a true diagnosis and that is getting some histopathology. But ultimately when there's more signs of aggression, I would tend to, to go into a, a finding the aspirate or a bone biopsy. Uh, or if there's something not making sense with the case itself, I might move into nuclear scintigraphy and see if there's extra things that are causing, um, causing the lameness. In the end, you have to think to yourself, what is the imaging going to do for me? Is it going to change my treatment options for this particular horse. Well, the cyst-like lesion in this particular area, there's obviously a couple of treatments. We can try to treat the joint if there's some joint associated with it. If the bone pain in which we can have intramedullary pressure cause bone pain, and this probably is the case here, um, we can try to treat it with uh, some local shockwave or something like that. But ultimately, the advanced imaging may not necessarily change a huge amount of what is going to happen in this particular horse. We might have drilled in a little bit further with our differential diagnosis. If we had done an MRI, that might give us a little extra bits of information to say this is something quite different. There's actually more tissue type rather than fluid type within this area. And that, that may have pushed us into a biopsy in this particular case. Yeah. Another thing, just as you were talking, made me think about it. You know, when this horse goes away and you say, let's see what it looks like. And it comes back roughly six months later, you re-radiograph it and you say the changes um, were minimal. 
And that's theoretically good, right? Like you're happy that it's not super aggressive and there's a lot of bone changes that are happening with a, a huge turnover in 60 days, like you talked about. But there's got to also be a, um, something going on in the back of your head that you're thinking, boy, it's been six months. And while there aren't worsening changes, it doesn't actually look like things are getting much better at all either. So when you see that situation where you see a lesion uh, in a bone, you know, in an, a tissue that should turn over and change that isn't, that's got to be a, you know, a little alarming to you. Is that a fair statement or am I, am I off? Yeah. It, it always makes you pause for a second and, and think like, why is this not getting better? What is happening with the bone? And Sometimes you fall back, you have similar disease processes in unusual locations. And sometimes you think about, okay, well, if this was a subchondral cyst in the stifle and there was nothing done to it, what happens to the subchondral cyst-like lesion in the stifle? Well, those tend to expand out a little bit and get bigger, but they still have smooth margins. And so sometimes you temper your, your thought pattern with worst case scenario with this is this is disease that potentially is just an unusual location. And so you kind of fight that internal battle with yourself and trying to figure out what, what's the best thing to do for the horse. You don't want to be um, too aggressive in what you call, but you also want to make the right diagnosis for the horse and um, make sure that it gets the correct treatment. So yeah, there, there's always that nagging feeling. What else could I do to make the correct diagnosis for sure? Yeah, and this is a, a tough situation. And radiologists get put in this position a lot. As a radiologist, you know that. I'm not one, and I constantly put you in this position. And that is, is you've got a situation here that a horse that's getting worse, and you're really not going to be able to have any more information about the radiograph, uh, other than the radiograph, I should say. And, and you're trying to make big statements and potential life-altering decisions based on just a limited amount of data, which is always tough. It's not really a question for you as much as I sympathize with the position that we uh, often put radiologists in. Um, and, and I, I think that's a good, I think that's a good point is that we, we have the report, which we try to give and convey meaningful information and then have a differential diagnosis, a ranked differential diagnosis. And then oftentimes we'll have comments below of what the next diagnostic to do is. But sometimes that's just not enough. And, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't pick up the phone to the referring veterinarian and try to have a conversation with them and, and learn what their perception is of the horse and, and get a little bit more. And maybe that gives me a little bit more insight into what's happening within the bone, even though we have the static images and, and that's what we have, sometimes that extra conversation is very helpful. And I would say that that is probably one of the biggest things that has helped me progress through the years uh, is having those conversations and having good relationships with, um, with veterinarians to, to, to talk through very challenging cases. Yeah. Um, so moving on a little bit here. So it looks like at that five and a half month recheck evaluation, lameness is worse for three out of five radiographs, a little worse, uh, but nothing to make a big decision on. looks like the horse goes back home. 
and then gets reevaluated another roughly six months later. So that's six and a half month follow-up. Um, and at that point in time, uh, it sounds like there was a worsening lameness and the swelling was getting uh, more significant and the evidence of the financial limitations were hitting home. And it looks like ultimately at that point in time, uh, any sort of aggressive treatment or further diagnose, diagnostics was uh, declined and euthanasia was elected and they ultimately took the horse and did a post-mortem examination on it. Uh, what you guys have written in the report is a, is a really nice description of the post-mortem examination. I know you're a pathologist and I'm not going to ask you here to go through all the details yeah, of it. That but, is... That is Dr. Poole, who is an amazing bone pathologist. Um, but if you don't mind, if you could just give the audience an idea of the, the, the cliff notes, the what you and I understand version of what they found on the postmortem exam. Yeah, yeah. on the cut specimens, the gross anatomic and then radiographic, uh, also cut specimen, there's this large expansive Lucent area filled with these uh, this these cellular um, areas and and as again you had mentioned I am not a, hist a histologist but the the um, the internal tissue was a bunch of fibroblasts and spicules of woven bone and bordered by uh, osteoblasts at their inception at their kind of inception and so the the diagnosis ultimately was a couple of different things, but lean towards um, ossifying fibroma. And that is the biggest, the, the uh, differentiator. It wasn't a big cyst-lined structure. Um, it did have a lot more communication with the joint than originally seen on the radiographs, though. Yeah, and these ossifying fibromas, um, uncommon for sure, but when you do tend to see them, where do you tend to see them? They're usually in the skull. That is the primary area that I have seen ossifying fibromas and the distribution, like you tend to look, you look, when you hear hoofbeats, you look for horses and not zebras. And so um, if I see an expansive lesion that has fairly smooth margins in a younger horse, I start to think about a, a, a ossifying fibroma. That is not necessarily something I think about in the distal limb. Um, there's other radiographic uh, there's other radiographic diagnoses um, and tumor types that I might think about in the distal limb. So this that is not one that was necessarily on my radar for one here. And that's interesting as I say that because Dr. Poole um, also said that this is not a very rare um, problem in the in the distal in the distal limb of a horse as well. And so he he had some some words to 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 conclude with on this particular horse um, and encouraged us to write it up. Yeah, it looks like in the beginning of your discussion, for anybody that's reading along or goes back and reads it later, it looks like you guys describe or discuss two reports of an ossifying fibroma in the uh, appendicular skeleton. One looks like it was in 2010 uh, that was of a splint bone, and then another one in 1998 uh, that was in the proximal tibia. And then finally, there's a third report that you talk about uh, that is not an ossifying fibroma. It is a non-ossifying fibroma, and that one was in this position uh, at the proximal phalanx of, again, a, a younger horse, an eight-month-old. 
Um, I'm not going to ask you what makes something ossify or non-ossify, uh, but I think the takeaway probably is, while rare, when you see a lesion on radiographs that's causing lameness that just doesn't quite look right and is not getting better, that it could be something unusual. And I know um, you look at images for people all over the country, really all over the world, uh, and I don't know how often you come across not necessarily the specific diagnosis, but just something that is just a bit off or weird and your, your, your eyes are probably on more of the weird things than any of us will ever see. So do you mind just giving a few minutes on um, how, you, how you get access to all these images and uh, what goes through your mind every time you see something that is just one of these what is this moments, which I'm sure you have a lot of. Yeah, it, it, there's not a week that goes by that there's something that's atypical that comes comes across my desk. And when those come across my desk, I, I look and I always fall back on there's, you know, the human brain is really good at pattern recognition. And for a lot of them, I can just say, okay, well, that's what that is and, and move on to the next thing. And there's always these ones that are strange. And, and that's when I fall back on the Rankin signs, which is the size, the shape, the margination, the location, and the opacity, and the number, and then come up with an appropriate differential diagnosis list. And when I was in vet school, I, this this really hit home, and I started to think about this a lot more. And I and I use this to my to my to my time. I I or to this day is you're only as good as your differential diagnosis list, and I um, use that all the time. I, I use my differential diagnosis, trying to expand it, have it in a ranked order. Um, and that's, that's how I fall back on looking at these. And I, I, when I look, I look at a fair number of images from around the world. So not only do I have, uh, I work for Colorado State University, but I also have a private practice where I have the luxury of, of meeting all these absolutely wonderful veterinarians who also tend to send me a bunch of images to review and send them back reports. And so that's how I get to see all of these, these, these really cool cases. And the interesting thing about seeing cases is that makes you better for the next one. You may not got, have gotten it exactly right, but you hopefully have this great communication with these veterinarians and have the ability to follow up and, and get better for the next one. And so every one you build upon, uh, you, you get to be better and better and more experienced. And, you know, the, the interesting thing I was told a long time ago is that the knowledge is out there. It's all in these papers, but it's the experience that you, we all are really lacking. And each case gives me just that much more experience. And so that is the, the beauty of being a radiologist, I think, at times is seeing all these great cases and and uh, using the puzzle work of the Rankin signs to fall back on and try to figure these things out. A little bit about uh, how veterinarians have established the relationship with you to have these radiographs and MRIs and CTs and bone scans and all the other imaging uh, read out. What is the process um, for any of the veterinarians that are listening that might be interested that don't have a relationship with you? How do people contact you? How do they get uh, their their images read by you if they would have an interest in that? Sure. So a lot of times I'll be at a conference and I'll um, either be presenting or somebody will have heard about me and they come up and, and talk to me and I usually give a little business card and then we send 
an email out with all the the particulars on how to send stuff too. But there's also the word of mouth, at least for um, let's say you have a friend and you want to send them my way. That's the other thing. But we it's a it's a pretty simple process for us where we send out an an onboarding list of documents, which really is uh, an IP address, an AE title, and a port number to our server. You plug that into your X-ray unit or your DICOM viewer and you hit send and you go and then everything else is online. And so you just log in to iiradiology.com with your username and password, uh, enter some, some signalman in history. And then within 24 hours, you have a report back with key images showing you what we think the lesions are. And anybody can do that or, or do they have to have a special relationship with you? No, anybody can do it. We tend, we we really like to have uh, veterinarians. There's an occasionally uh, an owner that will try to send stuff to us, but we really like to have a relationship with the veterinarians for the the um, for a couple of reasons. One, we may not have seen the horse, and we we really need somebody with eyes on the horse that is trained, and so we want to have a veterinarian. Um, as a working relationship. And, and we try to encourage um, a two-way communication. So if something's not making sense with the report, call us, please. And, or we'll call you if something's not making sense with us on the other end. But um, anybody can do it. And really the, the way to make a relationship is just to start talking and, uh, and find some common ground and, and work it all out. And if anybody has spent any time with Dr. Selberg, which I have, uh, he's not tough to talk to. You get him going, especially if there's uh, you have some free time or it's about lameness, ultrasound, or radiographs, and it's going to be a pleasant, easy conversation. That's for sure. Um, so what I'd like to just finish up here a little bit on is you guys have a really uh, extensive and, and well-written discussion that goes into uh, a lot when it comes to uh, fibromas, et cetera. And I don't think there's... Uh, any need to rewrite or uh, go through the discussion in detail. If you're interested, if you're an audience member that's interested, read through it. It's a good read. It'll answer probably any question that you have that uh, we would be unable to do on the spot here. There, figure two and three, uh, there's a nice radiographic image that's overlaid with a histopath image of P1. It's really nice. They, if you're into histopathology, figure three's got a nice slide of uh, some of the spindle cells that you look for in the sort of issues. Um, so without feeding too much of the information that's already provided to people, do you have any takeaways that you'd want to say about ossifying fibromas or uh, to veterinarians in general when they come across something like this in a weird spot? Yeah, the, I mean, the, it's I'm just kind of reiterating what I've said, but there's Whenever there's something a u unusual about a set of radiographs or a horse or or um, the presentation of the horse, fall back, really fall back on you know the basics, and start over and start thinking about signs of aggression versus non-aggressive bone lesions. The location of it is this a common area for whatever you're thinking of, and if it's not, then sometimes you have to go back and hit the books a little bit, hit the literature and try to figure out, well, what are some other differential diagnoses that I need to start thinking about on this particular list? And that's those are the basic things that I do on a daily basis, uh, not only myself, but I, 
I do that with my, my students that come through, my, my residents and my interns. We start back over and we have a conversation about what is happening. And it, you know, you may not need, always need a specialist to take a look at radiographs or what's happening with the case. It may be a more experienced colleague. It may be the same, same level of experience of colleague in terms of number of years out, but they just brainstorming together might help out a little bit too. And, and I think those are that networking of veterinarians. It's such a small community that there's always, you always know somebody that has seen something different than you or, or, or is a good person to just bounce ideas off of. And, and so I, I think those are at least for me, the take home messages um, is building a network and, and having good friends and colleagues to, to help yourself out when there's interesting cases that come along and try to figure everything out. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, I think a lot of times people may be reluctant to send something because they don't know it and they're worried that it's an obvious thing that they don't know. But chances are it's not. It's something unusual and the experts and the people who look at this all the time will find it just as fascinating and unique and to never get hung up by that. I mean, the bottom line for me and what you're saying um, for sure is that always ask somebody else. You know, if you're unsure, don't just fall back on staying unsure, reach out to somebody and, and get as many opinions as you can. And uh, nobody's ever going to be definitively right, but collectively you'll get an idea of at least what you need to do. Um, and if you don't have that person to bounce it off of, uh, you just got introduced to one here on the phone, Dr. Kurt Selberg, who's always uh, happy to help and uh, comes with a enormous wealth of knowledge. So with that, Kurt, I just want to say thanks a lot for your time, for your expertise, for for making the effort uh, with your colleagues here, Dr. Um, Balducci, Poole, and Radu, to put this out there. Uh, thanks for EVE for getting it in print so the next time somebody comes across this, they won't have to feel uh, like they're on an island, per se. They can at least have something to reference. Uh, with that, we will uh, finish up the podcast and... Uh, Kurt, I thank you, and I hope uh, you and your family and your friends are staying safe through this, and I really appreciate uh, your time and effort. Thanks for having me on. It was a good time, and uh, yes, stay safe out there. All right. Uh, for anybody listening, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, keep looking for more and more podcasts. Uh, Equine Vet uh, Veterinary Education is always trying to put interesting things out there uh, for the audience that could help you get better and uh, provide interesting thoughts. We'll talk to you all soon. Stay safe. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash eve.